Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Witness Docs from Stitcher. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax, it is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic. We want to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We are still all in this together, my friends. And in the two weeks since the last time you heard from us, coronavirus cases in the U.S. have crossed the 2 million mark, with 120,000 deaths so far. On the one hand, the death rate is decreasing overall, but on the other hand, the infection rate is going back up in many places. Oklahoma and Missouri, for example, had their biggest one-day increase in cases this past weekend. It's a complicated situation, people. The data seem to point in five different directions at once, depending on where you look. Are we caught on the crest of a massive new wave of infections, or are these just isolated peaks that will dissipate? Or will we see a quarter million deaths or more by the end of the year? To help us make sense of all these scenarios and the predictions and assessments that go along with them, I am joined by Dr. Carl Bergstrom. He is a professor of biology at the University of Washington and the author of Calling Bullshit, the Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. Dr. Bergstrom, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Carl? Of course, Bill. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Right now, just just to set the stage here, right now you're focused on what this COVID virus does, but you have a whole other data-driven life as a scientist, right? I mean, what did what were you doing before all this in normal times? Well, uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in epidemiology for many years and trying to understand how emerging diseases like COVID uh, come into the human population. Then I got really interested in general in how things move through networks, not only diseases, but also information. And so I started studying the way that information moves through networks, like social media. I started thinking about misinformation, and disinformation, and how that spreads, and how people can tell misleading stories using data. And that led me into the book project that you mentioned, and uh, and had been a major focus of my research when all of this hit, and, and it became time to go from theory to application. So you guys, by you guys, I mean epidemiologists, have been predicting a pandemic for years, right? Sooner or later. Sooner or later, predicting the same way that, that, uh, that seismologists predicted earthquake. Is, you know, we, we know it's going to come. We don't know when. 10,000 years, for sure. 
Exactly. So uh, what's the information that's moving through society that's analogous to the virus or what's the virus that's analogous to information? Well, I think the, um, you have, you have all kinds of ideas that people start posting on social media. You can think about memes, just your nice cat memes or something like that. And those go spreading and they kind of, you know, initially it's made, fizzle out or they may, if they're really funny, expand exponentially through um, you know, transmission on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever. And that's a kind of innocuous thing that's not as bad like a virus. But then you can also get these sort of false rumors that get started. And at the start of COVID in particular, there were, there were some particular false rumors that were, uh, you know, that we were, we were tracking uh, rumors about, uh, you know, maybe, um, you know, that this is untrue, but the claim that it had been an engineered virus. Or um, that uh, you know claims that there were uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths that were being covered up, things like that, and those again spread kind of exponentially through these networks. People pass them on to their contacts, perhaps without meaning so to do so, and um, and so uh, that has very similar dynamics to the dynamics of the spread of the virus itself. So I've been really interested in testing, for example, and the the role that testing can play. Um, in helping us control a disease. So my understanding, testing can help in three ways. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, testing can, you know, I mean, I, there are kind of many roles for testing, right? And they get confused sometimes. And, and you know, one, one role for testing is just exactly what you do typically when you go to the doctor and get a test for just about anything. Uh, this is sort of a personal health role. They want to know whether you have it or whether you don't so that you can take care of your own health. And in the case of a contagious disease like, uh, like COVID, so you can prevent uh, yourself from sharing it with your friends and family and so on. And so that's kind of one basic role and maybe the easiest to get our heads around. Epidemiologists want to do a lot of testing for the sake of surveillance. So we want to have an idea of uh, whether uh, the disease is in an area, whether it's increasing in frequency in an area, like you talked about in the intro, or whether it's going down, uh, whether the interventions that we're putting in place are working. And so what we want to do there is kind of statistical sampling. Um, testing just representative populations within an area to figure out what the disease is actually doing. And then there's a third role that I think we can move toward and can really provide us with a lot of uh, your firepower, if you will, to start uh, getting back to more and more of our everyday lives with work and play and all of that. And that's what I call testing for mitigation. And, the, and this is sort of the most subtle of these. And this is testing people at a fairly high cadence uh, every few days, you know, perhaps in a workplace or a school. And uh, the idea there is that the reason this disease has been so hard to manage is because it spreads uh, before people show the symptoms yeah, and, yeah. or some people show such mild symptoms that they think, Oh, it's just seasonal allergies or whatever. And so what we want to do with testing for mitigation is we just want to detect as many people who are carrying the disease, but don't know it and tell them, Hey, look, you've got the disease and you need to self-isolate for this period of time and take these precautions and so on. And so what testing for mitigation is, is it's really a matter of screening as many people as possible in the community so that you can, um, take people out of you know this general kind of circulation where they could be transmitting during the period that they'd be contagious. So you do mathematical modeling of, in this case, the COVID nineteen virus. How I'm imagining, just hearing you talk, there are several factors. I'm imagining some sort of matrix where you have mask, no mask, indoor, outdoor. How outdoor? How indoor? How many factors do you need to take into account? Do you think in this case? 
Yeah, so there are a lot of different approaches to how you model these things mathematically. Um, everything from sort of uh, you know, almost curve-fitting approaches where people don't put any of the biology in at all and don't think about any of those particular factors and just look at the data and try to predict, like, what are those data doing? Um, uh, that's not the kind of thing I do, but there are people that, that, that do the models that way. Um, and to models where you try to take into account all of those details that you're thinking of and a lot more you know, in terms of the structure of people's social interactions. So you have these so-called agent-based models where you actually, you know, create a model where you're, where you've got, uh, you know, maybe a million little individuals in your, in your, you know, sim city that are running around and interacting with each other. And they, uh, you know, they, they have different careers and they have different family sizes and all of that. And we're working somewhere, um, you know, downscale with that. But what we tend to think about are models where we where we have uh, people that are in are in social networks, and people typically have a few layers of their social network. They have a workplace layer, the people they know through work, or it might be their school layer, or it might be they're retired, it might be that community. Then they then they have um, you know sort of a, a, a home layer. Who are they interacting with when they're not at work? Uh, you know, they have a family layer where they're really having tight connections with the people in their family. So you think about uh, people moving around in those, you know, social contexts and, uh, and that generates uh, probabilities of, of interaction between any two people. And you would take into account that some people have uh, a lot of contacts and other people have a small number. And then you, then you, you know, want to try to estimate the, the probabilities that, uh, that people transmit to others. And with this disease, it looks like those vary. So some people, when they get the disease, don't seem to shed a whole lot of virus. Uh, other people seem to shed a lot. There's so much uncertainty. So you're trying to fold all of these uncertainties into the model. How many data are you talking about? That is to say, here's a person. First of all, how many people do you model? How many agents do you model? And then I'm imagining an array, that uh, a vector of... Uh, each person has associated with a bunch of factors, right? And you somehow make the, find the intersections in some magical vector space. Yeah, great questions. How many people do you model? So we tend to run about a hundred thousand um, when we when we do a run, and that's just a it's a trade off between uh, because we're we're run, we run it we run you know we run it many many times because the the progression of an epidemic is a stochastic event. Sometimes you have a super spreader event early on and things explode. Sometimes it fizzles out, and nothing happens. And so we run it a whole bunch of times, uh, you know, for each particular set of parameters, just so that we can see what uh, the range of possibilities is. So we can say, well, if it's like this, we expect you to be somewhere in this range. All right. So how, how, how accurate have it proven to be? Well, you know, the models that we're doing are not um, what you'd call predictive Models. There are a bunch of different uh, you know, roles for, for models. And what we're trying to do with ours, rather than to predict the particular trajectory, is to uh, evaluate different possible interventions. Um, and so, you know, uh, if, if you looked at our models, I mean, they would do a very good job of uh, predicting past events because we're fitting them with data from past events. Um, what we're trying to do you know, looking forward is to, um, is to figure out, you know, suppose that I start testing everybody in my workplace once a week, what happens and so on. We're not trying to model one particular town. What mitigation steps do you recommend based on these models? Well, um, 
we're, we're seeing that things are very, very hard. I mean, so this gets back to one of your previous questions, which was about, you know, what are the, what are the range of factors that we consider? And so we actually try to condense a lot of those down, you know, uh, to as few dimensions as possible. So, you know, you could, you could, you can imagine having a vector that has, uh, you know, how far do you stay away from people and another vector that says, do you have a mask and another vector that says, what kind of mask is it and all of that. We try to condense that down into one number, which is kind of a general propensity to, to transmit in a, you know, in an encounter. Um, what we find is getting that number down is probably the best thing you can do. Um, so, you know, whether that's wearing a mask or, uh, I mean, which we especially indoors, wholeheartedly endorse, um, even outdoors, I wear one personally, uh, in a group, of course, whether it's, you know, social distancing a little bit more carefully, whether it's just increasing the frequency of hand washing, uh, seem to seem or avoid, you know, avoiding large gatherings, all of these things seem to help a lot. What becomes, you know, we were hoping that you would also make a huge amount of headway with the sort of test, trace, isolate uh, paradigm where you test people for mitigation on a frequent basis. When you find positive cases, you do contact tracing, figure out who they've contacted have those people self-isolate um, and basically try to get anyone who might be infected out of the, you know, out of general circulation in the population. So when you're talking about distilling it to one number, mm-hmm. are you talking about this mythic thing? Uh, you, we hear a lot about the transmission rate. Yeah, we're, it's something like that. We, um, the transmission rate is the total number of uh, cases that a single case on average creates over the course of an infection. but we don't know how long the infection is. So in, in our models, we want to know more like the instantaneous transmission probability. The number that we use is like a transmission rate per hour, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that allows us to then vary the duration of infection. Oh, wow. So you're coming at it from a different direction. Do you see convergence? That is to say, do your models agree with other models or are they very different? Uh, we we see very strong convergence, and when we don't see convergence, that is you know really the interesting part. And you say, okay, here's this model that's getting something completely different than we are. What's going on? Or have we missed something? Or are they making some unreasonable assumption um, in their case? And so there's just a ton of back and forth, and that's what an awful lot of us are doing in the community right now: is developing these models, presenting the results to one another. You look at someone else's model, and you say, gosh. You know, they think uh, they think only a third as many people is, are going to be infected as we do. What is the difference if we missed something? And then, you know, sometimes you say, yeah, we're not taking into account the fact that there are super spreaders and we've got to add that into our model. Or other times you say, oh, I see. They assume that, you know, something that, that actually is, is true in the community they're working for, but isn't relevant to what we're doing. We'll be back right after this. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD, streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring. Full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. 
somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Contrarians mm-hmm. have said the models are all over the place. Yeah. The models are this. To me, as an engineer and a guy who likes astronomy, the models are actually not all over the place. It's just sort of worse than you'd think. That's, that's how I'd paraphrase it. It just seems to me the future is not that great unless some vaccine is developed and distributed and testing happens and people isolate and wear masks, unless people start changing their behavior quite a bit from what we're doing now. And the example I just think of, what are we going to do in airports? Airports are really, really hard. There are a lot of situations that are really hard. I'm really worried about, uh, I'm worried about colleges because you go to college, um, you know, basically to go to class where you've got people talking indoors in an enclosed space for a period of time or to party where you've got people partying indoors in closed spaces for a period of time. If you can't do either of those things, there's really no point in being in college. Um, and so we, so, you know, like we have, they have all of these spaces where we do things that are really conducive to viral spread. And, um, you know, before we can really get back to full blown, you know, life pre 2020, I think we're probably going to need a, uh, vaccine. No, yeah, for sure. In the meantime, what can we what can we do um, uh, about all of that? Um, and and you know, hopefully, some of these you know increased testing and and some of these other precautions can help us a lot. I mean, we've seen that uh, action on a mass scale can turn a pandemic around because we were you know exploding in in March and early early April, and then the the curve turned around. So we know we can do it, but we don't want to have to go through the enormous, you know, level of societal shutdown we were then. And so the, you know, it's a matter of tweaking it and trying to, you know, how can we get everybody back to work, but maybe under somewhat different conditions so that, uh, so that we can keep the virus under control. Well, the other thing that's fascinating and uh, gives you pause for thought is the death rates going down, but the rate of new cases is going up. Right. Is this, Good or bad? Is this indicative of taking the right steps or taking the wrong steps? Or is it just there's so much going on you can't sort it out? Well, there's a lot of different things that are going on. I mean, one thing is we're probably doing a better job of keeping the virus out of the most vulnerable populations. And so, you know, which would be uh, people with pre-existing conditions and people in long-term care facilities, older people. And so that that's certainly helping get that death rate down. Another piece of the puzzle is that... Uh, 
we see the numbers of cases going up, up, up um, and some of that is because the numbers of cases are going up, and some of that is because the amount of testing is going up. So there are a lot of different moving parts that we don't have great numbers to to understand exactly what's happening. I mean, it reminds me of how people would describe studying whales. How do you study whales? There, you know, the ocean is enormous and they're underwater almost all the time. So you, so you just have this very limited kind of sampling and you don't even really know about the biases that come into your sampling. Are you happening to be looking for whales in places that whales like to be or are you, are you not? And the thing about epidemiology is it's so statistical. We, we, you know, we, we're not tracking every single case when you're at this stage of a pandemic. We, there's so much that we don't know about where the disease is and the sampling that we do, when we were talking about, sam- about testing for surveillance, is so seldom you know, completely random. I mean, it would be great if we could just you know, randomly pull people out of the, their workplace or whatever and say, okay, you, you're going to get tested today. But we don't do it that way. Instead, we're testing people basically who have decided they want to get tested. Yeah, self-selected. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. So there's selection bias. I mean, this is something we write about a lot. You know, how do you correct for the fact that the, that the people who we are testing are are the people who think they probably have it. So before we get to the book, I have offhandedly predicted using just the back of an envelope that in the course of the next five years, I think we're going to have a half a million deaths in the U.S. from this thing. Do you make any predictions like that through your models over the next five years? I have not made uh, predictions like that. I think, you know, order of magnitude, your prediction sounds good to me. It's, it's, certainly, it's certainly not too low order of magnitude because an order of magnitude lowers 50,000. We're already more than twice that, heading to three times that. Um, order of magnitude higher would be 5 million. That's really extraordinary. That would require much higher case fatality rates. So, you know, you're certainly within an order of magnitude. And I'm not confident going much sharper than an order of magnitude right now, uh, given the amazing uncertainties. And this actually brings us back to a point that, that um, you know, you were talking about, and I wanted to touch on very briefly, which was this issue about critics saying the models are all over the place. And part of the reason the models are all over the place is because they're modeling very different scenarios. Uh, so some of the models are models of what happens if this goes all the way through to herd immunity. And that's where you start to hear numbers like the numbers out of Imperial College, a million U.S. deaths, or even two million U.S. deaths if it was unmitigated. And the other models are models, what happens if we manage to control the waves and keep it at very low levels until we can develop a vaccine? That's where you were hearing numbers. I mean, now these turn out to be uh, lower than than, than, than we've even experienced already, but that's where you were hearing numbers around 100,000. Models are all over the place when you ask them to model different things. It's like if you talk to a seismologist and you say, look, when the big one hits Seattle, if it's a 7.8, how many people are going to die? And the seismologist might say, well, it's probably you know 10,000. And then you go back and you say, well, suppose, suppose a 5.0 hits Seattle, how many people are going to die? The seismologist says, oh, between 0 and 10. And then you say, oh, the models all are all over the place. Well, it's not that the models are all over the place. You've asked about two very different um, you know scenarios, and uh, and so I think a lot of a lot of that is uh, is generate you know the misunderstanding around that is where this criticism of the models being all over the place is. And the earthquake it depends on the time of day. Was it a weekend? Is it? And it depends on the time of day. Yeah, so exactly on, yeah, right. So it happens in the middle of the night. It's such a good time to have it happen, right? Uh, well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. Well, that's that's the key, Bill, to all of epidemiology, right? It's one of my favorite expressions these days. It absolutely, without question, depends. 
Your book is Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. What kinds of information are being spread? Okay. So, um, you know, we've had a lot of discussion, let's say, in the United States about, uh, about you know, first of all, whether the disease was really, you know, likely to take off or not. Early on, there were a lot of predictions that, oh, you know, we only have a few cases in the U.S. and it's going to go away. Um, that's one kind of information that was that was being spread around. I mean, I think one of the biggest debates is this debate about how dangerous the disease is. There are some people saying, look, it's just a cold or it's a, it's a mild flu. And there are you know, a lot of other people, um, including most epidemiologists, saying, you know, this is 10 times worse than the flu or, you know, ballpark. Uh, for people of, of any age, it's 10 times worse than the flu. Um, you know, being 80 and getting COVID is 10 times worse than being 80 and getting the flu. Being 20 and getting COVID is 10 times worse than being 20 and getting the flu. Um, and so you know, that's one area where you have people using a lot of numbers, throwing around a lot of numbers and a lot of statistics uh, and claiming whatever it is they want to claim. Unfortunately, it's been really highly politicized here in the U.S. So... Uh, you know, one of the things we talk about a fair bit in the book is how to analyze these claims, even if you're not an expert in statistics or uh, or you know machine learning or whatever it is that they're that they're using. And and it is you know a matter of thinking about things like selection bias. It's, you know, someone says, you know, I'm estimating how many people have already had it based on testing the number of people who came to my clinic to get a test. You can extrapolate from that to other groups of people who are coming to get tests at clinics, but you can't extrapolate that to the population at large because you only go to the clinic to get a test if you think you might have it. There you go. So I saw the video, I guess it went all over the place on the electric Twitter machines where this guy was uh, in Oklahoma. He was going to go to the rally for the the president's reelection campaign. And he said that he had a friend who died. Mm-hmm. And the friend's son got infected, had a very bad reaction, was on a ventilator for a few days, almost died. But this guy on camera report, telling his story was not going to wear a mask because he thought, well, you can't really tell which side the information's coming from. It's not really, you can't really be sure what's going on. How would we convince that guy that there is a way to tell which side has good information and which side doesn't? If I knew the answer to that, I'd be doing it. Uh, it's become really hard here in the United States as these issues have become so heavily politicized and as scientific expertise is, you know, in my opinion, being attacked very directly uh, around all of this. I, I was incredibly surprised to see that happening around a pandemic. You know, I spent 20 years thinking about pandemics, preparing for a day like this, uh, and while there were political disagreements about how much the government should be involved in advanced planning, I always assumed that if the pandemic actually hit, we'd all be on the same page. Uh, and then my friends who are climate scientists just look at me like I'm the most innocent, naive child yeah, yes. to possibly think that. And uh, I don't know what you do when you when when science becomes when scientific claims become politicized, and so people start attacking the credibility of science itself. So um, I think all we can do is be as honest as we can and be transparent, show people what we're doing, explain what we're doing, do a good job of scientific communication like you've been doing for a very long time. But is there something else? This is to say when you, when you use expressions like uh, correlation is not causation, uh, selection bias, stuff. these are shorthand 
expressions for what I would call critical thinking. Precisely. Which, mm-hmm. which is the, you know, the worship phrase for those of us in science education. But this last weekend, where this enormous crowd was expected to show up at the stadium, but they didn't show up. And it may be because of TikTok and K-pop and whatever the young people were doing to make it look like they bought tickets when they really had. But I think it's really people didn't want to die. Yeah. That deep down, there was a genuine fear of getting sick at this thing. Do you think there's any evidence for that hypothesis? It's certainly one of the better explanations for why people didn't show up. I think that that, uh, um, you know, people, there's... There is a difference between the claims we make online. Those are often very performative and then what we actually believe. And so maybe a lot of people will tell a surveyor or they'll claim on Twitter, yeah, I don't believe in any of this coronavirus stuff. It's no worse than a cold or it's just a hoax or whatever. But deep down inside, like you say, they think, I'm not going to chance that. That's, you know, what if those people on the other side are right? And uh, and so probably that's the kind of stuff does start to. Um, and I think your, you know, your comment about critical thinking is, is extremely important. You know, a number of years ago, I was worried about these kinds of issues and decided the best thing I could do was to, um, you know, sort of take a long game perspective. And, uh, you know, my approach at that time was to sit down and, and uh, start teaching this course, uh, Calling Bullshit, the book uh, is based on a course that I developed at the University of Washington, where we teach critical thinking and with, particularly with a focus on data reasoning coupled with media literacy. And I felt that there was this huge problem around media literacy. And, uh, and so we packaged those things together, started teaching that. And the goal was to try to get this to take off nationwide. It's you know, being taught at dozens of universities around the country now. Um, and we've been piloting it in high schools. We do big high school programs. Uh, you know, Washington State has now got a, a uh, media literacy requirement that they're moving into the, into the high school standards. And I think if we can get this groundswell of you know getting people to think about media as we experience it and thinking about data and the enormously important uh, place that data has in our current society where we've got embedded sensors and Google knowing everything we want to know and Amazon knowing everything we want to buy. And How do you teach people to call bullshit? How do you go about it? It's very, very simple questions like any reporter would ask. I like to Tell people, you know, when you hear a claim, ask, who's telling me this? How do they know it? What are they trying to sell me? Um, and if you can answer those three questions, you can often figure out what to make of a, of a claim you're hearing um, with respect to actually being an active, engaged member of, uh, of a you know, social, uh, social network, an online community. And we have to realize that you know, until, 20, until 10 years ago, really, all the information we were, that we were seeing were, was coming through basically professional editors who were deciding what media was worth consuming. Now we've taken on that role for one another. What do my friends see? Well, it's what I and their friends decide to share. And so we can also be a little bit more thoughtful as we do that. So one of the things we really tell people is, you know, think more, share less. Uh-huh. There you go. And uh, you know, if you're going to retweet an article, try reading it. <laughs> there you go. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you indeed. Today's guest has been Dr. Carl Bergstrom. He's a professor of biology at the University of Washington and the author of Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. It's all about critical thinking, people. Speaking of, 
this is a show for you, the listeners. So please leave us a voicemail with your questions. The number is 201-472-0785. That's 201-472-0785. You can also write to me at askbillnye.com, askbillnye.com. We're taping two new episodes this week, so please especially send us questions for them. We've got none other than Bill McDonough on sustainable architecture and design, and Nathan Mirvold on the future of food, bread, clean energy, and paleontology. I'm Bill Nye, my friends, and this is a pandemic. That means it's all over the world. So we are all, each and every one of us, still in this together. And my friends, during this pandemic, science still rules. Now, if you like science rules, and I hope you do, Please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us find out who's listening, helps us find out what you all want to listen to. It helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. The show is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is once again Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Josephine Martorana is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, science rules. A few more things. Wash your hands, wear a mask. And when a contact tracer calls you, pick up the phone. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.